Welcome to this new episode of uh, Stami Talks, the podcast where we discuss uh, fertile technology. Uh, and today we are in uh, Paris with uh, Alsbetta Klein, uh, CEO of, uh, of IFA. Um, welcome Alsbetta, thank you for, for having us. Uh, Delighted to be here. It's uh, great to be in, be in Paris. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> welcome. Yeah, thank you. Can, can you, to, to start off, um, uh, maybe share some insights about IFA in general? I think uh, IFA has been around for... Um, as long as the industry has... Uh, hundred years. Yeah. Uh, we've been around since 1927. So International Fertilizer Association, or its predecessors, have been established in London in 1927. The uh, first conference was in 1926, and they decided to set up an association. So we are almost 100 years old. We have always been uh, a UK company registered in, uh, in the UK under the Companies Act. And over the years, we migrated um, in the 1940s and 1950s. We had a committee based in Hamburg, uh, shipping committee, that we had a committee for agriculture set up in France. And eventually, around 1960s, we moved the headquarters to France, where we still have headquarters. And today, we have offices in London, in Paris, and uh, several staff in Germany, the Netherlands, and the United Arab Emirates. Okay, great. So today, we are in the uh, in the heart of Paris. Really yeah. nice to uh, to be here. Uh, can, you, can you maybe tell something about how the... the IFA's role, uh, what the objectives are from IFA, the mission, and maybe how those have changed over the course of the years? Uh, our mission is very simple, help feed the world sustainably. It's a very noble mission too, because when you think about feeding the world, uh, when folks have nothing to eat, there's nothing else that matters. So helping to feed the world is actually something very essential and very very existential in a, in a Maslow hierarchy of needs. So attacking the, the, the very core of what needs what, what everyone needs to have access to, which is food. But the mission has changed. Um, when the association was established about 100 years ago, it was a producer's association. It was a small club of producers producing superphosphates, actually. And over time, it has grown. Uh, it has grown from producers of uh, superphosphates to producers of nitrogen, potash phosphate, the macronutrients. And over the years, the association grew to include traders, so companies who distribute the, the plant nutrients, universities, financiers, technology providers, startups, and many others. So the, the association has evolved quite a lot, and you wouldn't be around for 100 years if you didn't evolve. Yeah, part of it, that's the, I think the necessity of innovation that you have to stick around to, to, to proceed. Okay, and um, so in, in current days, IFA has this, this board uh, scope of helping the, helping the world to f- to feed. Uh, I'm I'm going to say helping the world to fe- to feed itself sustainably because it's the re- one of the reasons why Stomach Carbon is here because it's very similar to sort of our mission uh, to enable the world to feed itself and improve the quality of life. So um, I I might uh, make a, a a mismatch in uh, assigning Stomach Carbon's mission and vision to Evas, but they're so similar. So I think that's uh, oh, that's great. Uh, but that's of course also the reason why why we're here and. In terms of the sustainability part, right? So I think you're you're very clear. So hunger is a is a basic need. People want to, to eat, and if you ask anybody, uh, do you want to eat something next year, or do you want a sustainable world? That everybody's going to to choose to eat something. Uh, but at the same time, of course, um, fertilizer has an impact on the environment. Um, how do you do that? How what's the um, uh, it's an association, so it's bringing parties together. Can you tell something about your uh, what does a a a week in the, in the life of IFA look like? Mm-hmm. 
You're absolutely right. If your children are hungry, nothing else matters because you're going to try to get them food. But what we have seen over the past, I want to say 10, 15 years, uh, because that's when it became much more pronounced, is that we have certain planetary boundaries. We don't have enough land. Uh, we have land where we have. I think it was Mark Twain who said, you know, buy land. They're not making it anymore. And he said it in 1800s, right? So we have certain amount of land we can grow crops in. We have certain amount of nutrients that we can um, use to actually grow um, our food. But we have limits. We have limits. We have natural limits, natural environmental limits. And, and we have to respect them. And uh, when you think about feeding the world sustainably, you can imagine a set of simultaneous equations. You know, Okay, you have to produce the food, but you have to produce it on a land that we have and not convert anymore into agricultural use. You have certain limits on emissions that you shouldn't breach. You have certain limits on nutrients that are available, nutrients that come from, from the ground, like potash, for example. So you've got a whole bunch of constraints and you have to fit within those constraints. So we at IFA started around 2018 with a vision of IFA 2030, what do we need to do to be more sustainable? And since then, the industry evolved quite a bit. Um, we started looking at our scope two emissions. We started looking at our scope three emissions, published the studies in 2021 and 2022. 2023 was our year of biodiversity. So really we are trying as an industry to try to get our arms around these topics and understand what it takes to feed the planet, the ever-growing population of the world, but doing so within the planetary boundaries. Okay. So then you 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 talk to fertilizer producers, say what what can you do? Can we do innovation? I think then that's also where I think uh, stomach carbon has a important role, at, at least in the nitrogen part of of fertilizer, of course. And that's where um, I think our agendas really align, not just on emission level, but I think we've uh, come out with our vision 2030, also in 2018, 2019. Um, which focuses on three elements, basically making a sustainable production, yeah. um, making sustainable fertilizers, so that's the application part, uh, and also um, focusing on digitalization because we really, oh, we already see that we can uh, improve plant uh, fertilizer plant efficiency by four or five percent just by improving digital skills. So I think that's a, a massive gain for the whole industry to to do. Um, I think at the same time, I think last week, uh, we well, we broadcast this, this podcast uh, early January. So um, now we're, we're, the recording is in December. So the, the COP28 was just done, I think, this morning in the news. Also that the final text was approved. Um, but there, of course, there are um, different opinions, different stakeholders with different interests. How do you manage that? Mm-hmm. As a broad broad tent association, which we are, we have 480 members. Obviously, we have a variety of opinions in the industry. But ultimately, we can think about sustainability in two buckets. What do we do in a factory and what do we do, what do, we do on the farm? Mm-hmm. So if you, if you think about it in a factory, this is where you and stomach carbon are in, right? In nitrogen. So if you look at the three key macronutrients, uh, nitrogen, phosphate, and potash, the key issues around emissions, obviously, in nitrogen, because it takes so much energy to produce it, and you can produce it through uh, fossil fuels, or you can uh, produce it through renewable sources, or you can capture emissions and 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 produce blue. So fundamentally, the the direction is to use the best available technologies and then innovate so that we can bring new technologies into the production. And then we have a second part, second bucket, which is what happens on a farm. And here, the real key is nutrient use efficiency. And no one in the association, even though we are broad tent association, if you will, 
Nobody argues about better nutrient use efficiency. Why? Because in this particular case, sustainability and um, economics go hand in hand. If a farmer buys uh, a bag or 15 bags of fertilizer, they're spending money on it. They don't want to waste it. They want to use only as much as needed, only at the time when it's appropriate to fertilize, only in the structure that they need for their plants. So actually, on the farm, sustainability and economics go hand in hand. You don't have to convince farmers to use uh, to be careful about fertilizer. They are because they pay for it. This is this is their funding. So um, nutrient use efficiency is key, and I think we have a long way to go to get it right. There are regions where we over-fertilize, there are regions where we under-fertilize. And uh, the key point here is one size doesn't fit all. We have to look at regions, we have to do soil mapping, we have to understand our soils. And this is one uh, one thing from, from COP uh, that I just returned from. Uh, we had, a, for the first time, World Soil Health Day. So COP delegates were discussing what we can do to make soils healthier. And obviously fertilizers help and hinder, and we need to be very conscious of what fertilizers can do and cannot do for soil health. So let's, let's, can we dive a bit deeper into the, into the COP? Because I think the now World, World uh, Soil Health Day, of course, is a topic that, of course, relates to, to fertilizer. I think also a lot to, to biodiversity. Um, how do those? Um, how, what 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 is the what what Eva does? Do you bring parties together? Do you put forward the uh, the efforts done by the industry to to improve all of this? Um, so we do a few things. Uh, first of all, uh, we have market intelligence uh, center, which means that we do statistics for the industry, and our statistics feed into number of other statistical um, uh, databases. For example, we feed into the World Bank pink sheets, commodity databases, et cetera, et cetera. So we are the, the authority on the industry statistics, if you will. And over the past few years, we started mapping not only the traditional stats, but also um, efforts to the green, efforts to the blue when it comes to uh, ammonia and hydrogen. The second thing we do is sustainability. And this is where we help our members to be more sustainable. Now, how do we go about it? few things. First of all, for uh, producers that are listed companies, they often get rated. They get rated by um, Standard and & Poor's and, and others. And they get rated, obviously, on their credit, but also they get rated on their ESG. And understanding what that means, understanding how they can improve their rating, and just basically lifting the curtain on this magic of ESG rating is what we have been working on. The other thing is that we found out that in the association, the CEOs generally understand what needs to be done, but a lot more education needs to happen further down in companies. So we established something called that we call uh, Sustainable Fertilizer Academy. It's an e-learning platform. We have about a thousand students, about 70 graduates so far, and this is just basic education on what sustainability means. And we've got a few other, few other things in that space. And then other things that we do in the association is public affairs. So we work with the United Nations agencies, actually many of them, uh, UN Environment, UNFCCC, um, UNCTAD, UN Secretary General's Office. And for these various agencies, we provide various services. So for example, last year with the Black Sea Initiative, opening up the, the flow of fertilizer and grains uh, from um, Ukraine and, and uh, fertilizers from Russia, we have worked with UNCTAD um, and we worked with UN Secretary General's office by providing statistics, by providing up-to-date um, data on a market so that these plant nutrients can get to the regions where they are needed the most. 
providing input to to make decisions that input to decision makers help, absolutely help the world to feed sustainably then uh, it, it comes, uh, comes, comes in a number of ways uh but in, in public affairs it's definitely providing uh, providing knowledge and providing also not only knowledge but convening power so one thing i'd like to mention is that last year we had a very severe shortage of nutrients um it was a crisis of availability and we put together, together with Rabobank and with uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, an initiative called Sustain Africa, where we delivered um, discounted fertilizer to 1.5 million farmers. I'm very proud of this because this is the first time when the industry stepped up and said, okay, we have a crisis. What are we going to do about it? And a number of industry players provided discounted fertilizer to Africa because that's where it was needed. Okay. So it's really a, a lot of broad collaborations with uh, industry partners with, of course, UN, global... Coalitions building. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you said that there's a, there's a long way to go. That's what you mentioned there, because um, you know, we're, we're far from a sustainable industry at the moment. What do you see as the the main obstacles to, to get there? There are a few things that we need to uh, that we need to work on. Um, one thing is when it comes to uh, nitrogen value chain, we know that we do not have enough renewable energy to produce green, to produce green ammonia, green hydrogen. The scale up of renewables would have to be such that it would encompass everything we already built, and we have to double, triple, quadruple that. So that's one of the biggest obstacles. Then the second one is the policy environment. So what we are seeing now in the United States, for example, through the Inflation Reduction Act. That when you do uh, when you do carrots, uh, people come and try to build. When you do sticks, it's a little harder. So carrot and sticks balance in policy making is tricky. Uh, but we are seeing that um, Inflation Reduction Act in the United States definitely brought the industry in. And while blue is not a panacea, it's not a solution that is gonna encompass them all. It's something we can do now. And in in our view. Anything we can do to improve the environment, anything we can do to produce with less emissions is actually worthwhile. But we are strongly supporting um, the development of renewable energy because that is where the scale up of the green ammonia slash hydrogen will be in, in the future. And then the other thing that we are looking at is the role of ammonia in energy transition. We haven't talked about it yet, but this is actually quite critical because part of our industry, the ammonia part of our industry, literally see, sits between food and energy. And this is a very interesting space going forward. Will ammonia be shipping fuel? Will ammonia be the decarbonization vehicle? Yeah, we've, we've done some projections. I think in general there are projections of what ammonia will do, let's say up to 2030, 2050. Mm -hmm. And of course, and the use of ammonia will dramatically increase due to this reason. I think also the uh, the use for, for shipping fuel, bunker fuel. Yeah. Um, do you see a tension between those especially if you talk about green ammonia, I think then, then there's the, this need to make it green, so then the green power sustainable s solutions is a, a lim limiting factor. Um, how do you see that? Because I think that the, the balancing between, well, using green, green ammonia for fertilizer versus green ammonia for shipping fuel, um, do you see an increasing tension there, or is that something that... that aligned somehow. So first of all, I'm, I'm very happy that a humble ammonia can be a decarbonization vehicle, but I'm also worried. I'm actually quite worried and I'll tell you why. Um, I know what it takes to get fertilizer to farmers in, uh, in the regions where there are many subsistence farmers. They do not have spare penny to actually spend on plant nutrients. And once you have a little bit of a competition for that ammonia, well, it can go to shipping companies, it can go to subsistence farmers, it can go anywhere. 
What I'm worried about is that if there's going to be green premium, which means that green will be a little bit more expensive, it's going to price out some of the subsistence farmers out of the market. So I do worry about it because, as you as you rightly pointed out, it would have to be scaled up in capacity tremendously to service the shipping market, to service the broader decarbonization market, and to service as a fertilizer, right? And uh, I can imagine that a shipping company will always have more money to pay for decarbonized fuel compared to a subsistence farmer. So yes, it actually makes me worry too. Yeah, because they, they, they make a sustainability report every year and want to indicate uh, a growth of being more sustainable every year. So there's there's need the premium is... Uh, is uh, it's the ability it's to pay. Yeah. It's the ability to pay, yeah. right? Um, a large company will always have a better ability to pay for decarbonized, decarbonized fuel compared to a farmer. Mm-hmm. So one of the... I think especially for, for shipping fuel, I think there's a lot of uh, existing infra- infrastructure already in place. Of course, most of the imports that can support ammonia storage tanks and uh, all that, that stuff. Um, I think if you, if I take a step back to what you said about uh, fertilizer needs in Africa, um, because Africa is, of course, a very big continent. Uh, it's got a lot, of, um, well, a lot of hydropower, but also a lot of soda power available. Um, and then that could um, really, do, at least in, in my point, if you could really disrupt the market, if you would make fertilizer sustainably, but for a local uh, takeoff, um, then there is no. Uh, you could really create a small community that makes their own makes their own fertilizer and and uses it for uh, local produce. There, are, that's a whole new area that we haven't talked about yet, which is yeah. decentralized production of ammonia. Which is really interesting. So our association opened up to startups. Um, our view is that we bring anyone who can bring plant nutrients to the table and you have a new technology, bring it in. And so we opened the association for startups to startups. We have um, uh, a dozen of startups currently being members of the association and we invite them to present, we invite them to bring in the technology, show it to large players and just just start start working in the space. I think you can imagine a bifurcated environment when you've got bulk of ammonia being produced where it's produced today, which has sources of um, sources of uh, energy. And then you may have a second part of ammonia production, which is going to be done on the farm through renewable fuel sources um, in much smaller capacities being used by the farmers on the farm. That is a potential scenario going forward, but we need to do a lot of technology development to get there. Okay, well, well and, uh, we're working on it. <laughs> That's <laughs> great, yeah. <laughs> but it will take, of course, uh, the, the technology development takes a lot of time, of course. Um, so that's one element of what the future might entail, eh? getting to this basically d- diversified ammonia production, b- both large-scale and small-scale, more global and local. Um, are there any other trends that you see if you talk about what does, uh, what do you think or what do you hope that the main objective of EVA is in 2050? Or, may- or maybe 2030 as a step in between or... What's the direction we're going to? Directionally, I think um, there's going to be two areas that we will continue working on. So obviously in the production space, there are going to be two areas. One, how to produce ammonia uh, more effectively from more renewable energy sources with lesser carbon footprint and lesser environmental footprint. How can you do it on a farm? How can you do it decentralized? How can you do it closer to the final customer? And, And that's that can go as far as the limits of chemistry and physics allow us to go, right? We're still at Haber-Bosch, 100 years old, but so there are some limits of chemistry and physics, what we can do. But the research, and yourselves included, are very much uh, very much on it. 
The second area where I believe we have even better opportunities to bring in more sustainable food systems is how we use plant nutrients. Uh, what are we doing on a farm? And that includes a few things. First of all, um, we have several startups in the association that are looking at microbials, that are looking at uh, slow-release, control-release fertilizers, so basically specialties. Um, and the research continues in that space. Um, I don't think it's been as mapped as some other areas of technology and applying technology, precision farming um, is going to be one of the many areas to actually get better nutrient use efficiency and therefore better production on a farm. Um, the other one is education of farmers. Um, farmers are oftentimes very traditional. They know what they have done 5, 10, 15 years ago and they are not as keen to change, um, but technology is coming there as well. And there is plenty of space to to explore what that looks like. So when I think about uh, fertilizers down the line, 2030, 2035, I think you're going to see one movement, and that is that fertilizer is going to become more of a service rather than a commodity. Okay. We are going to be much more precise in terms of what is going to be used at a farm, we are going to be much more precise on a particular soil with a particular production, with a particular crop that you want to grow. And there is definitely a space to do more of that. And obviously with the AI coming in, um, that space is very wide open. Yeah, so then data is is key to to start and collecting that. And of course, you've got a, a head start with the data and analytics that you already have for mapping soils, soils and, and technology there. Yeah, we've done a few um, joint ventures and, and partnerships, for example, a partnership with Agmatics, um, which is basically opening data to the public and bringing in um, all the soil experiments that we can on, on one platform. And, and we have some other partnerships in the making. So if you ask me, what is what is a typical day uh, at EFA? It is, uh, it is a number of public-private partnerships because that is the space that we occupy as an association. We are right in the middle of public and private, connecting the companies with policymakers, with with uh, NGOs and others and, and create those opportunities. Yeah. You see, at least my assumption would be that you, that there are a lot of regional differences there as well, not just culturally, but also, let's say, in the adoption of technology. Um, is that something that Eva has a, uh, a, a take on, a view on, on uh, what would be the, the early adapters? We are more of observers uh, rather than commentators on it. Uh, we have watched what happened in the South American agriculture. When you think about Brazil and Argentina, which today are powerhouses of agriculture, they are one of the seven countries that feed uh, most of us uh, through producing grains and oil seeds. If you look at what happened in, in, in um, Argentinian and Brazilian agriculture, that is the area where agriculture got professionalized, got aggregated, and created economies of scale, which allow these two countries, first of all, to earn a lot of foreign exchange through production of agriculture, but also be one of the most efficient producers of, uh, of food on the planet. And so the question is, what can we learn in other regions and what can we bring to other regions that we learn in South America? Because that's the story of last, say, 30, 40 years. We strongly believe in IFA that Africa can and should feed itself, and we have a working group on Africa. It's absolutely essential that collectively, as an industry, and with our partners, we help Africa grow. Yeah. Well, thank you. I think we were also looking at uh, how much how much time we've we've we spent so far. I think that's a great um, sort of circle um, circle background to uh, how can we feed the world. I think that's also where where we start. I think it's a very uh, interesting conversation on different efforts, uh, different partnerships, obstacles, um, 
and future perspectives on how we would uh, enable the world to feed itself or to uh, help to feed the world sustainably. Um, I think that's a uh, a mission that will, um, well, I think can stick around for, for quite some time. I think at least until 20, 2050, and hopefully most of the industry will be, uh, will be carbon neutral. Carbon neutral, and most importantly, we should not have 800 billion people who are nutritionally insecure or who are going to bed hungry. I think that that has to go hand in hand. And oftentimes I get asked a question, you know, is it sustainability first or is it feeding the world first? And I would say it's both. We have to be able to do both at the same time because we do not have any other options. And oftentimes sustainability on the farm actually leads to better outcomes, better yields, more food on the farm. So food security and sustainability go hand in hand and we have we have our task cut out for us. Yeah, thank you. We want, what, would you like to, to add something while we still have got the, the, the chance? Any, any final thoughts? I would like to thank you for the invite to this really interesting podcast. And I think um, I am quite impressed how our missions align. And thank you for being a valued member of IFA. And we have plenty to work together. Oh, thank you for, for having us. And let's uh, put our combined shoulders under the uh, common objectives to uh, feed the world sustainably. Thank you. Thank you. Stummy Talks.